The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. All right, Romans 7. And I'm going to, you know, the law, as we've been discussing, and again, like I mentioned this last week, some some of these concepts we're teaching just blatantly, thoroughly, overtly from Scripture are really hard to accept even though they're right, you know, right there in Scripture. Like like this verse, if I... That's big, you can read that, can't you? The sting of... Look at that. Yeah, I'll read it to you. The sting of death is sin, and the strength, or in the King James, strength, or in the Greek, the dunamis, the power of sin is what? The law. That's hard. That's hard to... Like, it's right there in the Bible. The power of sin is the law. I've been told it's that hyper-grace stuff. You know, that greasy grace message. I've been told it's lukewarm, backslidden, not zealous enough, blah, 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 blah. Amen. But the power of sin is the law. Not debatable, not some TV preacher we don't like. I mean, plain as day. Those are the types of things that even though you read it, your brain wants to fight you over it almost. You know what I mean? Like years of religious conditioning refuse. The Bible is probably, is for Christians, I'm talking about for believers, the Bible, as much as anything, is what, ma- is what makes it so difficult for us to believe the Bible sometimes. As Andrew Womack puts it, most Christians don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. And that is so true, you know. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, a whole lot of reasons. Um, it could be any number of things. You know, if you grew up in a certain tradition and, man, your, your pastor and he dedicated you, you know, and he baptized you, and you grew up under their preaching, and then, you know, it, it's hard to separate the goodness of the man or the woman of God that has meant so much to you, you know, from, number one, most people don't know how to agree to disagree, disagree agreeably, right? So it has to almost be like all or nothing. They can't separate and compartmentalize and stuff like that. And then, you know, as you get older, let's say, you, you know, I, got, I came to faith as an adult. I mean, really. Even though I always believed in the Lord, I never really received Him and, you know, all that. So, you know, when you spend time and service and, dare I say, money, you know, into a church, into a ministry, it's hard to, because you feel like you've wasted or you feel like you're the one that's been wrong. Oh, if I say they're wrong about this, well, I'm wrong about this and I've been supporting that and... Like, it, it really, it, am I making any sense? Like, it, it, it can be hard to separate and work through some of these issues. But I think it's important, extremely important to do so. And as we start here in Romans 7, though, um, I am going to look at some, sim- what I'm calling this morning, this will be fairly simple, um, I think. But what I'm going to call, we're going to look at a few, a handful of what I call symptoms of legalism. And this, I think this will help us. Um, Romans 7, okay. So we're going to consider some symptoms of legalism. See what I know it's working, but I can't see the verse on my end, so I'm going to have to do both. Romans 7, and then starting in verse 13, says, Therefore, talking about the, the Ten Commandments, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Romans 7, 13. Paul says, may it never, never be. Now, again, uh, that may... It may sound really simple when I mention symptoms of legalism. I think if as much as we, you know, as we can, um, if you pay attention and 
get some of these things, you'll really, it'll really help you, I think, uh, help all of us. You know? Yeah, Roman uh, seven thirteen. then he says, may it never be, rather it was sin in order that it might be revealed or shown as sin um, to be sin by affecting my, it's very wordy, I know, but uh, by affecting my death through that which is good so that the commandment, so that through the commandment sin would be, thanks babe, she, Wow. In the middle of your preaching, your wife walks up to you, hands you coffee, and says, I think you could use that. I can, I can tell this is going to be one of those landmark days, huh? I, this, is, this is like when Israel crossed the Jordan. This is, this is, a, this is piv. I'm on my game today, in other words. Uh, nonetheless, though, he says, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, or in the flesh. And remember, this is important. Paul in Galatians and Romans in the flesh does not mean I had one too many glasses of wine, I kicked a dog, and I flipped somebody off on the highway. It was a bad day, a bad week. I was in the flesh. That's fine. That's normal verbiage. I get it. I use it myself. But technically, that is not, is not, not, not maybe, not, well, it depends. No, that's not what he's saying here. In the flesh means spiritually dead Jew under the law. In the spirit means born again, regenerate, in this, you are, as he gets to in Romans chapter 8, the, the spirit of Christ is in you now. So we are, we have spiritual life, all right, in the spirit. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. Verse 15, for what I'm doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Romans 7, 15, verse 16. But if I do the very thing I want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. Now, by, in Romans 7, Paul is sharing the experience of spiritually dead Jews under the law before the cross. So that's, he's sharing the dilemma, right, in Romans 7. Um, for, verse 18, for the willing, you know, the desire to do good, in other words, is present with, but the doing of the good is not. So the desire to keep the law, he's saying, was there, but the ability to do it, not there. And I think we can all, um, understand that, can't we? You know, you, about the time you think you're really spiritual on your game and, and prayed up, fasted up, confess, word, I'm confessing the word, confessed up. I mean, just, man, you got somebody healed. You were, uh, you preached your best sermon ever. You, you were a great witness at the office. And about the time you think, I about got this deal figured out. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Boy, that's when you fall flat on your face and have, and are reminded once again, help me, you know. I need it. I, it's you. It's your grace in and through me. It's not me. It's not my ability. And um, that's just how it goes. And I think that one, one great example of that, and I think most of us can relate to this, is when you think about love and loving others as I have loved you and, you know, as Jesus, the new covenant, one and only new covenant law written on our hearts. When you try to do that on, through willpower, basically. When you make up your mind, you know, you're just going to walk in love. And that's the day, boy. 
where it hits the fan. You know what I mean? That's the day where it gets ugly. Could you bunch up? Don't look so sanctified out there while I'm sharing. You, We've all been there, haven't we? It just, for some reason, I don't know why, why we think this. We think we can mature and grow and develop and produce fruit by willpower and effort and on our own. It is, it is completely, 100%, as impossible to live as godly as you already are inside as it is to walk on water, turn water to wine, split the Red Sea, or raise the dead. Jesus said explicitly in John chapter 15, you can do nothing apart from me. The context was bearing fruit. So, again, it gets back into this lie of, yeah, I, I got saved by grace, but I stay saved and, and grow into sanctification and mature and develop through effort and willpower. It, it's that whole beautiful heresy. Um, but, you know, Paul said in Colossians 2, as you received Christ the Lord, verse 6, so continue in him. How did you receive him? By grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's how you continue, right? Now, uh, continuing here in Romans 7, verse 19, Paul says, For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. Verse 20, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer doing it, but sin which dwells within me. Now, when he, in other words, you know, in, at the beginning of Romans 6, when Paul says that through Jesus, uh, the King James says, calls it the old man. The old man is dead. And then he goes on and he calls it the body of sin. That's what we commonly use, typically, or very often we call it the sin nature, right? Um, that, that's all the same thing here. The old man, the body of sin, sin within me, in the flesh. This is all this expressing the same general condition, you know, human condition. Uh, verse 21 here is, is, notice how he sums this up. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present within. Notice that. I find then the, the, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do the good. So, I want to do the good, but there's something greater than my want to. There's a law at work within me. The law of sin and death, he goes on to call it. All right? So, it's sort of like, how many, I mean, every kid and probably most, most adults have a want to, to just be able to just right here, right now, defy gravity and start, and flap your arms and start flying. Right? And kids, you know, talk about you know, Daddy, Mommy, when I go to heaven, will I be able to fly? You know, we think, you know, it's just apparently we think that's fun, you know. <laughs> um, and I suppose it would be, especially in heaven where you can't crash, go boom, you know, something like that. But so I want to fly in and of myself, but I find there's a greater law at work here called gravity, right? And Paul is saying to the spiritually dead Jews who are under the law, there was a desire to keep the law, but there was a law Another law at work, the law of sin and death, which the law of Moses corresponded to and stirred up within me, Paul says, right? Now, verse 22, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 23, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me, this is, this is something, and making me a prisoner 
Look at this. For I joyfully concur, verse 20, uh, what did I say, 20? For I joyfully can, you know, concur, agree with the law of God. And he's talking about the Ten Commandments. In the inner man, verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, the part of me that wants to do good, and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is in my members. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. That sounds like Dr. I am, I am, green eggs and ham. I am, I am a wretched man. Who will set me free? That's a tough crowd today. Who will set me free from this body of death? Well, he goes on and answers this question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then he sums the whole thing up. So then, on one hand, I myself, with my mind, serve the law of God. That's the part of me that wants to. And he's, he's really talking about the Jew that's under the law. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Then, as is incredible as Romans 8 is, it's so important that it's understood on the hills of Romans 7. So, so that, that's part of what makes his statement so profound here in Romans 8.1. Therefore, you know that don't, when you see the word therefore? Yeah. Find out what it's therefore. So there is therefore. Now notice what Paul says. There is therefore now. Somebody say now. Now I know Christine would never, but hypothetically. Or a Abby would never because Abby obviously is doing it. Straight and narrow, baby. Young lady, I want that room clean and I don't mean tomorrow. I mean now. So every time you read this verse. And I just, it's the, isn't it amazing? It's usually the simplest things that, that's, that's one thing I loved about Brother Norville. He was so simple, just so simple. But it was his simplicity that made him so profound and brilliant. But just something like that. This verse, in other words, every time you go to read this verse, it's, it's always going to say now. It will never change and fit your situation or my situation or our circumstances. It will never change and conform to our circumstances. It will never say there didn't used to be any condemnation, but bless God, you had your chance, mister. You blew it. No, it will always say now, you know. Kind of like Ephesians 2 always says, for you are saved by grace. It will never say you initially got saved by grace, but it will never say that. It will never change to fit uh, our circumstances. All the beautiful verses, Ephesians 1, verse 7, Ephesians 4, verse 32, Colossians 1, Revelation 1, John 1, 29, 1 John 1, 7, Hebrews 8, 12, and 13. All the beautiful verses in Scripture that tell us that we've been forgiven. It'll never change and say, you know, well, you got forgiven of your past sins, but now it's up to you to somehow, because there's something in us that we think we have to sort of deserve forgiveness, you know, which is, if you did, it wouldn't be forgiveness. It, it is ludicrous. Forgive as in a gift. Um, and, and more on that here in just a moment as, as we're going to look at some of these symptoms of legalism. But anyways, there's therefore now no condemnation. That word condemnation in the Greek literally means a damnatory sentence, a guilty verdict, all right? There's therefore now no guilty verdict sentence of unworthiness, sentence of damnation, etc., for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Aren't you glad? Verse 2. For the law, so here's a new law, of the spirit of life. What is the law of the spirit of life? That's the new birth. That's the life of God that's inside of man. That's, that's there's so many different ways to say it, but um, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. That's, that's, similar. that's that law of life that's on the inside of us, right? Um, God breathed into Adam, and Adam became a what? What's it say? A living, that's life, a living soul, life. And interesting, and most of us probably know something of this, in the New Testament, the word, you know, most often used for life is the Greek word zoe, and it, what it means is the quality of life by the one who possesses it. So, in other words, it's God's life, so it's his quality of life, right, when it speaks of it. God's life, spiritual life. So that's the, that's the quality of life that's, that we are. You know, Jesus said, whoever believes in me has passed from death into life. Not will when they go to heaven. No, it has happened. And they will never die. Right? Uh, Gospel of John, Jesus said. Verse 3, check this out. For what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did. So what the law could not do, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He, not us, not our works, not our fasting and praying and all that, He condemned sin in the flesh. So notice that. Jesus was the death blow to death. Does that make sense? Jesus killed death. And, that, and that's goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when the Lord prophesies to the serpent that the seed of the woman, which is the virgin birth, Jesus, would you know, conquer the seed of the serpent, which is sin. And he says that the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would bruise or crush the serpent's head. Well, a crush to a head is a death blow. And bruising his heel, well, that's the cross, obviously. But as Hebrews 2 says, through death, he defeated him who had the power of death. <clears throat> That's good stuff, amen? So, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because he condemned that which condemned us, basically. Jesus condemned, yeah, the law, that's right. Jesus condemned that which condemns us. Woo! So sin, think about that. I mean, this, this makes perfect sense. Sin is for the spiritually dead man under the law. It's not for the new creation in Christ Jesus. Why? Because sin, the law was to diagnose the sin in man. Well, Jesus has taken sin, that sin nature, that old man, that old body of sin and death, out of us. So now there's a, the book of Hebrews talks about the law being the old and dead way, but the new and better covenant being the new and living way, right? So um, all, all of this here works together beautifully. And if you remember, we looked at it a couple of few weeks ago, but there's a, a couple of verses in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul says, there are those who, not knowing what they're saying or, or affirming, desire to be teachers of the law. He says, not knowing that the law is not made for a righteous man. 
And what are we? The righteousness of God in Christ, right? Now, these things being said, and Romans 8 is gooder than good, and that's not good English, but it's pretty good theology. I want to consider a few thoughts here on, um, again, symptoms of legalism. And I was thinking about, you know, this morning I was thinking a lot about the Pharisees. And when we think of the Pharisees, we naturally have a, like a negative, right? I mean, these were not what we would consider good, good hombres. They headed up the charge to kill their own Messiah. I wouldn't recommend it, you know, just not good stuff. Not going to turn out too well for you there. But the Pharisees, to us, they are, you know, it's like in the Scripture. There's a lot of places in the Old Testament where the Lord is telling Israel, if you don't stop following and serving, you know, false pagan gods, which are just demons, it's not going to turn out well for you. And you're going to be taken from your land. And your temple is going to be, you know, abolished, destroyed. And, and then the Lord would sometimes say, and you will become a byword. You understand that expression? Yeah, it's, I know what it means. I don't really know. Somebody can explain it. You, raise your hand if you know what that, if you know what the connotation, about half and half maybe. A byword. It's like, it's like saying, uh, um, almost like this, all, all roads lead to Rome or went in Rome. You know, it's, but in a very negative, a byword, it's a, um, it'll come, I'll think of a better way to explain it. But in other words, it's not going to turn out well for you, you know. And for us, it's sort of like that with the Pharisees. When we say Pharisees, we have a certain image that comes to mind, so to speak. The Pharisees are a byword that implies a thing of the past, you know, and, for a certain, and, for, and with good reason. There's good reason they're not thriving today, per se, <laughs> officially, as they once did, you know. The Pharisees were the most religiously devout people around. They would have absolute cream of the crop, creme de la creme, as good as the, the most devout, the most dedicated. They would have no problem getting by just fine in, to, in much of today's church. And rumor has it, they very well might be. Legalism's still around a little bit, isn't it? Okay, yeah. It's no rumor. Maybe that's what we are. Like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it's uh, um, in recovery. You know, sometimes, you you know, when you talk and, you know, hi, I'm Jordan, I'm an alcoholic, or hi, I'm Bob, I'm a, you know, it, it's a, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. We're, this is a legalist recovery group we come to once a week, right? Go to your weekly meeting. You need your meetings. If you're going to stay sober off of that, because legalism is so intoxicating. Yeah. It, it, it's, in, to, it's intoxicating to think little, I mean, big old me, I, uh, I mean, God's doing all, now the rest of you I don't know about, but me and Yahweh, boy, we, we're holding this thing down. Waiting on the rest of you sinners and slackers to get it together. The absurdity to think that we could do something to get right with God. It is so blasphemous and sick. And yet that's what most life, it's sick. We were so lost. Ephesians 2 says we were lost without God and without hope in the world. In other words, we were so lost, we didn't even know we were lost. That's pretty lost, you know. But I want to, I want to uh, jump into sharing some of these here. But again, it's important. The Pharisees, have, has, have any of you ever read the Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, the, what, what Protestants call you know, the apocryphal books or the Deuterope? Well, they're good history. If nothing else, they're very good historical books. And Judah Maccabee and the revolt and, and all that stuff, but the uprising and standing for God. That's where the Pharisees came from. That's their origin, right? Because... You know, when Je you know when Jesus said the Pharisees, don't fast and pray like the Pharisees because they do it in public to be noticed of men. 
that's where it started. Because back during the time of Judah Maccabee, when they revolted against uh, the pagan, you know, empires trying to make them not serve, kind of like with Daniel, you know, they try to make them not serve the true and living God, all that. It was illegal. You couldn't just pray to Yahweh out in public. But they would do it at, at cost of life and limb. That, that's, that's highly commendable, isn't it? That, that, think about it. If, do any of you ever, you know, I'm not, you know. If you ever pray over a mill in public or anything like that, well, what if praying over that mill in public meant, oh, they're praying, let's, let's take them out and cut their heads off real quick. Well, that's what it meant then. And that's where the Pharisees come from. Highly commendable to pray in public to the Jewish God when it costs you your life, you know, stuff like that. Well, then, but by the time the Pharisees in Jesus' day come along, that's, that's what they pointed back. That's their heritage. You know, we were forged in the fire. That, that's our heritage. A Pharisee, and somebody can help me, uh, can't remember the exact age. Was it five years old, eight years old? But by the time a boy who was in training to be a Pharisee, whatever the age was, five, six, eight, somewhere in there, they had to be able to go to the temple, recite the entire Torah. Five, I, I believe it was eight years old. Oh, was it five? It, no, that sounds more right. It's Google it. Hallelujah. <laughs> it took, uh, how old are you and can you do it yet? Let's put it that way, right? I can't either. So, yeah, it, either one's young, right? You know, yeah, 50, you know, so. And they didn't only have to recite it, but then the priest would examine and cross-examine and question them, and their every answer could only be a quotation from Torah. So it wasn't just, well, this, this verse says, no, just quote the verse. About the, every minutia and nuance and intricate detail of the law, right? Um, they fasted, as Jesus said. The Pharisees did fast twice a week. I know Brother Hagin did that for years and years. And when I think of him doing it, I have a positive, admirable comment. But we, when, you, see, you see what I'm trying to get at here? These were the, the Pharisees were the Joseph Princes, the, the Kenneth Hagans, the Lester Summerall's, the Martin Luther's. They were the top of the food chain, the most devout, the most dedicated, the most, if you would have looked at them, you would have said the most godly. But that's only because humanity is so religiously brainwashed. For some reason, we think godliness only means external actions, what you do instead of who you are. The word holy. What does the word holy or sanctified, same word, what does it mean? It literally means separated unto, and it means ownership. What's the opposite of up? What's the opposite, you know, what's, I'm trying to think, what's the opposite of life? Death, right? Um, what's the opposite of holy? We think unclean, ungodly. No, literally it's common because holy means separated unto. It's Adam's holding his phone. That phone is sanctified. That's not a common phone that anybody can take, grab, and use at their own leisure. That's, that's literally what holiness means, and common is the opposite um, of holiness. And just that alone, people would fight you to the death over. But it's not even a debatable point. It's just a fact. Now, um, Pharisees, the word Pharisee comes from a word that means separate, the separated ones. And, and you think about the... That's what good modern Western American evangelical Christianity thinks that's what it's all about, being separate from, from worldliness, being separate from the world. I mean, there's the Amish communities. They're separate from what they call us and everybody else, Gentiles, right? 
We think that's whole. Well, where was Jesus at? With the tax collectors, not separated from them. With the sinners, not separated from them. You know? And so, but these guys were, I mean, they were so holy. If a Pharisee walks down the road and bumps into someone that is known to be, you know, you're walking down the road, you stumble, or somebody's horse bumps into you and whatever. If you bump into someone who's a tax collector or any number of other sinful people, they would take their clothes, they go home, they burn that clothing so they could never wear it again, or they would spit at them first. They'd go home, they'd burn their clothing, and then they'd go through the proper cleansing, the, the baptisms, the mikveh, the washing cleansing rituals. I mean, these guys were separate. They were holy, right? On the outside. And that's the, that's the rub, right? With our heroes and friends, the Pharisees in mind here, let's look at a few thoughts here on what I'm calling, and if you, I think this will be very helpful if we catch some of this. And all of this is applicable to all of us. So we all need mercy, don't we? Now, so what are some symptoms of legalism? And these are no order. These are not exhaustive. These are just some thoughts. I, so here we go. To fast or read the Bible, or pray, etc., for the wrong reasons, such as, here's a, here's, a, here's a great charismatic, and it's not just charismatics, but that's what we are, so, but it's very common, you know, and it would depend on the environment. I don't think people around here are doing that too much, but I've certainly been in those settings, and I bet you have. How much did you pray this? Well, basically, only, only a self-righteous Pharisee who's got more faith in his works than he does the blood of Jesus would try to keep up with how much he prays. In terms of, oh, two hours. I bet God just feels so special when somebody comes and punches their clock in and gets their hour of prayer in. Oh, wouldn't that make your, your spouse feel so good if they came over to you and said, all right, honey, it's time for me to spend my hour with you today. You're on the clock. Let's go. I heard Andrew Womack say one time that he, he was in that, you know, as many of us have been. He had been doing that. And then when he finished, he finally said, oh, just without even thinking, spent his quiet, his private time, I mean, in prayer with God, and then he put in his hour or two or whatever, and then he, he finished, and he just, without thinking, you know, kind of mumbled to himself, oh, glad that's over. And, the, and he said, he heard the Lord say back to him, so am I. Because he wasn't prayer, it was just putting in his, his quota to, to make his conscience not beat him up that day, you know, had nothing to do with Oh, I don't know. Loving God? What a novel thought, you know. So how long I've done it instead of this is a love relationship. Joseph Prince said one time, it, our thought should not be, man, I've not read the Bible this week. I feel so condemned. It should be, I've not read the Bible this week. I'm hungry. That's the better mentality. And that's the proper mentality. That's probably what's really happening. But we're so brainwashed with legalism, we beat it. I mean, you can't do anything without beating yourself up hardly. You know what I mean? Feeling inadequate in some. So, you know, and you could do this to compare yourself with other people, to make yourself feel better, that you're more dedicated. Like the Pharisee, I'm separated unto God. My dad said one time, you know, my dad and, you know, my mother, my, my Karen, my stepmom come from broken, you know, marriages, and they both have their children, they're, you know, and then they marry. And so here you got five kids. <laughs> thought of that scared me a little bit. I had to. Catch my breath there, you know, bringing five kids, you know. And as far as I know, they knowingly, willingly, I don't think they were drugged into this. Dr drugged into, not drag, drugged. I think they consciously chose this. That, so, 
But it, you know, my dad, and he he worked so much, and he was a minister. He worked out. He worked. He worked. Still works a job outside the ministry. You know, he's a minister. And anyways, comes home one day, eats a little something, and then he goes up to the church. He said he's there for, and he'd have to tell it better. Sure. He says he's there, putting in his time. You know, putting in his time with God. And he said the Lord spoke to him and said, "What are you doing, Lord? I thought I was." The Lord told him, "Quit trying to impress me." Go. Some of you just went tilt when I said that because you can't imagine God. It, you can't even. That sh- that's how. That should show you something. Not. I didn't say it should make you feel bad, but it should. If that. If you thought well, God would never say that, should show. Well, that's not. Well, last time I checked, there's people in the Bible. Lord, can I follow you now? No. Go back to your home. Go back. To hell. You know what I'm saying? So that's Bible. Um, I think that's very insane. I got to get through some of these here though. Here's one. Here's a big one. And most of us from our backgrounds have, have fallen victim to this. Another symptom of legalism. Thinking that faith moves God. Instead of understanding that faith is us receiving. That's a big You know, when you put faith in Jesus to receive salvation, he didn't climb up on that cross and die. It was a finished work. You were receiving from a deposit that's already there. And it works the same way for healing, provision. Peace, joy, strength, etc. Faith isn't moving the hand of God. It's really moving yourself to receive from God. Does that make sense? That's, that's profound, man. If not, you'll turn faith into a work. And what has happened in the faith movement is we've put more faith in our faith than we've put faith in God. Uh, moving on here. Here's another symptom of legalism. When you're more conscious of what you do for God instead of what God has already done for you at the cross. That should be the, the underlying M.O. of the believer. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, he said, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What is that faith, Paul? Who loved me and who gave himself for me. So Paul said, everything I do is based on that foundation. Not my love for him. That's the law. They asked Jesus, Master, what's the greatest commandment under the law? And he said, what did he say? Love the Lord God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And week in and week out, we're told that's the key to the Christian life. That's what we got to do. That's what we got to get to. That's what we're supposed to do. And then he said, and the second is like it, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So that, and so Jesus summed up the law and commandments with that. That was the greatest commandment, according to Deuteronomy, under the law. But that's not the new covenant law. The new covenant law is... Love as I have loved. And that's, exact, and that's what John said. John said in, I was in 1 John, Herein is agape, not that we love God, but that He first loved us. That's the gospel. Woo! Here's one, and I mentioned this a moment ago. Another symptom of legalism is, in, is thinking that you have to be worthy of forgiveness. And on the surface, we might reject that. But how many times have any of us in here, because we've been told every time you sin, you're out of fellowship with God, even though there's no scripture for that, right? So a lot of us waste time putting ourselves through personal purgatory. So you had a bad day. I don't know what you did. You did something. And then you'll spend a week or two beating yourself up, feeling like you're slowly moving back into the presence of God somehow. As if he ever left you. Does that make sense? Boy, have we all... Well, I wouldn't think... Okay. 
well, do you feel like God won't answer your prayers because of fill in the blank, your mistakes? You know, it's all and on through there. Um, think, here, here we go. This is the American gospel right here. Another symptom of legalism, thinking that God is holding sin against yourself, against you, or against other people, or against nations, or whatever, the church at large, uh, thinking that God is holding sin against you, or who, or somebody else, or a nation. Well, obviously, He can't be, because behold the Lamb of God who 2,000 years ago took away the sin of the world. Was He telling the truth or not? If He took it away, how's He holding it against us? See, we think God is looking, He's the God of the loophole. He's the God of the breakthrough. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God of the loophole. Like he's always got some fine print way to withhold his blessing. We think that's all the charismatic calisthenics we got to jump through to finally get poor old stingy God to let go of that blessing he's trying to hold out on us. Right? Of course, you've never been there, have you? Well, God would answer that prayer, but... And then you remember two weeks ago where you felt prompted to witness to that person at the gas station and you didn't do it, so you think God's holding out on you. The God of heaven and earth has got nothing better to do than to treat you like a ant, and he's holding the microscope with the sun coming down to fry you, buddy. You know, like big old bad God's got nothing better to do. Uh, and I mentioned this kind of, but here's another one. Here's a symptom of legalism. Believing that you are separated from or out of fellowship, a phrase that's not in the Bible, with God. So we think we're on this, um, you know, my chair in my office spins around, you know, it rotates. I did my hour of prayer. I'm in fellowship. Oh, I had a bad thought. Oop. I'm out of fellowship. God, please forgive me. I promise to do better in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I'm in fellowship. Oh, I had a critical thought towards Abby. Oh, I'm out of fellowship. God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I promise to do better in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I confessed it. So now I'm back in fellowship. Oh, I went to church. Oh, I just had a critical thought about Ken's glasses. Oh, I'm out of fellowship. God, please forgive me. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, and that's right. If he, don't, if he doesn't forgive me for that, now he's out of fellowship with God. You can't live that way. If you take the stuff that we've been told seriously, you cannot live that way. Not, well, I, not maybe you can't. No, it's not possible. Not if you're honest with yourself, I mean. You know. um, another symptom. Ever comparing yourself and, you know, your spirituality with others. That's a big one. Just... You know, and that can be in a good, you, you know, in a prideful way or a condemning way. You know, well, I'm sure I pray more than Orla. <laughs> Look at me. I probably don't pray much as Lance, such a rat, such a worm. Oh, I bet I give more in the offering than Bob does. Probably not as much as John and Sally because they're rich. You know, just, it just, it's nonsense. Well, I don't preach as good as so-and-so, but I'm preaching better than them. I'm not as, I'm not as bad off as Adam is. Bless God. But I'm better than Orla. Or, I don't know. You figure it out. But, you know, one of those deals. Ever comparing your spirituality. Now, here's a, here's a way that we as charismatics do that. You listen to Brother Hagen, and man, he has, he has visions and goes to heaven, and then you feel unspiritual and condemned somehow because you're not having those experiences. Well, let Jesus take care of Brother Hagen the way he takes care of him, and let him take care of you the way he takes care of you and be cool with it. You have your own relationship. You know, so the comparison stuff, because all it'll do is puff you up or self-condemn and tear yourself down. Because that, if you're secure in your knowledge of who you are in Christ, you won't, you won't do that because he's the only one. 
we're living for an audience of one. Now, this gets into many other things. This gets into a root that most people suffer from. All people do to some degree, but, but you know, it's a good thing to become aware of it and to deal with it to some degree, and it's a lifetime journey, is caring about what other people think about you. That's a, that, that will crip, you know? Um, and that's really, that kind of gets into one of these other symptoms that I've gotten into, and that's, now think about this, not being able to, not, not in a condemning way, not being able to accept any sort of, I, I don't want to use this word because it's going to sound like I'm, any sort of blame or personal responsibility. If you're secure in the reality of who you are in Christ and that you're not in and out of fellowship, that he doesn't come and go, he doesn't love me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, based on my latest performance, thought, deed, motive, etc. You get out of that stuff, you know, out of that mentality. The, see, the Pharisees, Jesus tried to reveal their sinfulness to them. For what purpose? Because he was mean? No. So they would receive the mercy that only he could give. Does that make sense? But if you have to delude yourself into thinking that you can accomplish salvation instead of the reality, which is the only way it's possible, receive the free gift of salvation, right? So that's what legalism stems from. You know, you know what pride is? Pride is an insecurity. It's an insecurity of inadequacy. And so I have to convince myself that I'm, I'm doing it. I've got it together. I can accomplish this. Does that make sense? Overt pride is nothing but insecurity on this. Now, a lot, you know, kids are so precious. It's so easy. You know, you want to safeguard your little ones, right? You know, obviously. But it's so easy. And then, you know, how many times as parents, you're afraid you're going to, like, make your kids defective. or You know what I'm, you know, because, and not in newsflash, you're not a perfect parent. And I know that's hard to swallow, but just be, be okay with it. You know, just do your best, you know, love them and all that. You know, the scripture exhorts us to train them in the way they should go. It doesn't exhort us to be perfect or else, bless God. No, you're not going to be perfect, so it's not that. Um, but, you know, you think about kids, man, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times kids become victims of the insecurities of the adults rearing them, whether it's a parent, whether it's a school teacher, you know, and so if you had a parent or a school teacher or any number of things, really, but whatever, Sunday school teacher, who always blamed you for stuff. Somehow or another, if you had siblings, it was always your fault. Or if some other kid in the class was actually the one doing this, you were somehow the one that always got. Well, that's because that teacher had something in themselves that they didn't like that they took out on you. Does that make sense? Okay, so... If a lot of times a person who had a parent that was critical or a teacher that was critical and always blamed them and always made them the guilty party and always embarrassed and shamed them and, and all that, you know, that person, that insecurity will be hard for, for people to be able to accept blame or respond. I don't mean blame in a bad way. It's probably not the best word. I just mean responsibility for your own. Am I making sense? You know, like you, you can't, because in other words, they transferred their insecurity onto you. And now you can't ever accept it because, unfortunately, someone made you the blame rod target for, you know, forever. Well, it's just important. Instead of running from it, recognize that thing. But the, and, and by the grace of God, deal with it. But the thing that will empower you to be able to, number one, the biggest insecurity any of us ever deal with 
is even realizing and then being able to admit to ourselves that we have insecurities. That's the biggest one, right? Um, but what makes us able to deal with these things is realizing that none of these issues that I'm in wanting to work through by the grace of God, none of these things have anything to do with whether or not He accepts me. It has nothing to do with my standing before Him. He knew about this before I did. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God's not sitting around waiting on you to get it together before He'll love, fellowship with, bless, etc. He already knows you messed up. <laughs> you know, He knows it better than we know it. So uh, don't wait to get your act together before you decide you can receive. He already knows. Now, i got to move on here, though. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to close up here. First close. Oh, boy, here's a big one. Another symptom of legalism, being afraid to associate with people. Take your pick. Because of what your religious community or friends might. Another way of saying that, being more concerned about the rules. Than, that makes sense. And, and there's a lot of ways to practically look at this. But, you know, think about Luke chapter 15. We use it often. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus was sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And most Christians, you know, we say in church sometimes, hey, next week, bring all your, uh, bring, bring, some, bring your, what do we say, your sinner, for, bring your sinner friends next week. Your unsaved friends. Bring, that's it. That's how, yeah, sir. Bring your unsaved friends. That shows where me and Jane's at. Bring those sinners, bless God. No. Bring your unsaved friends. Unsaved friends? My God, we don't have unsaved friends. What would somebody think if we had an unsaved friend? We would never dare risk our reputation to have an unsaved friend or somebody else. I run around, I, I bump into this with preacher friends all the time. They would never publicly associate with certain ministers, not because of any moral failure or anything like that necessarily. I mean, sometimes uh, because of that. Well, that is a part of it, I guess. I have seen, I've seen personal, first privately, but personally, well-known ministers not associate with other well-known ministers that they once did because of their moral failures, because they're too worried about. And I see I'm not, a, you know, oh, I, I could never associate with them because they believe, again, more worried about the rules, more worried about all the right doctrines than people. I would recommend losing your giver. Shouldn't give a, in, in that context. There is a positive way to, I care about what Kara thinks about me. You understand? So there's a positive in my kids and stuff like that. But um, in the negative way that dominates you. I don't think we even realize... How, how often people are just at work, the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you do things, and it's constantly from this mentality of the concern of what those around you might think about you. Or I walked out of the room, and two seconds after I walked out, I heard everybody laugh. Oh, they must have been making... What if they were? Why should that... That shouldn't determine yourself. And chances are they weren't. That's just you projecting your own insecurity. Does that make sense? Okay, second closing, harp on this one all the time. Thinking, here's a symptom of legalism. Thinking that it's up to you to stay safe. Where my Pentecostals at today? Yeah, yeah. Thinking that it's up to you to stay safe. The most, perhaps, beautiful heresy in all. One of Here's a big one. I'm gonna, if, close your eyes real quick. If you can, close your eyes real quick. Just two seconds, you know. I'm going to say a word. What comes to mind? Linda, I'm judging you. I said, she won't do it. Yo, Pharisee. That was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> no, seriously, but I'm going to say a word. Here we go. Three, two, one. Righteous. What comes to mind? Most of us think righteous. 
doing what's right. That's not what the word righteous means. It literally means being right, to be right. To be what, in the Greek, to be what you ought to be. No. Um, oh, yeah, here's, here's one. Thinking that being holy is being morally clean instead of what it literally means, being separated unto. I'm not holy because of what I do. I'm holy because of whose I am. I'm separated unto Him. Now, this is extremely practical in how you read Scripture. Ephesians 4 talks about uh, the, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, being without wrinkle or blemish. I don't know why we think that somehow He's not coming back until the church gets its act together and we're holy and without. That's literally, literally not what it says at all in Ephesians 4, 5. Sorry about that. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 25. Husbands, love your, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. Who does this? He. So that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed, past tense, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but no wrinkles, no spots or any such thing, instead, holy and blameless. Literally says twice, so that he might do this. And yet somehow we twist that into thinking that's something we perform and achieve. And I only have, what, three more here and I'm finished. Here's one. Here's a really good one, I think. Good for me. Thinking that biblical instructions are rigid conditions of being accepted by God instead of what they really are, helpful life prescriptions. See, in a, now, that last example about uh, being being sanctified or holy is about being morally clean instead of what it literally means, being separated unto. And I used Ephesians 4. Um, this right here's a, here's an example of this. Um, Luke chapter 6. Check this out. In 30, 35. But love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind and and, uh, to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given. So notice those things. Judge. Uh, do not judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn. You won't be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given. So those all go together. But, but in verse 38, he says, they, or, or most men, will pour into your lap, or King James, into your bosom. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by the measure that you give it out, it will come back unto you. Nothing in here says, the problem is we read stuff like this. Oh, if I judge, God will judge me. That's not what he's saying. If you're a judgmental person, that will provoke judgmental people. You'll, you'll attract what's in here, right? And so, if I'm judgmental and condemning, that's what's going to come back towards me. It's called sowing and reaping, in other words. more You know what I'm saying. But we, we read that, oh, that means God will. He's not talking about what God will do. He's, he's fully, literally, and only talking about human relationships. Give unto men, or, or give, don't judge, don't condemn, forgive, give, and men will give into your bosom. 
N- nothing in here about a church offering. I don't know why it's always used for church offerings. By the measure you give it out, it'll come back to you. Um, last two. So that one was thinking biblical instructions um, are rigid conditions of being accepted by God instead of life prescriptions. So like Luke 6 there, you think, oh, that's, that's conditional if God will forgive me. Or th-. No, it's about human relationships. Here's one. Thinking that sin causes God to withdraw from you and or keep his blessings from you. And that's the Adam and Eve syndrome. They sinned. Sin is pregnant with condemnation and fear. So they ran and hid from God, or they tried to. But what did God do? Came and surely goodness and mercy will, Hebrew in the Hebrew, follow you, chase after you, hunt you down. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Uh, thinking that sin causes God to withdraw from you and or keep his blessings from you. Now, sin will affect our own conscience, our own heart. Sin will, sin will affect your receiver, but it won't affect God's giver. And that's why John says in 1 John chapter 3, even if your own heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Because <sighs> you don't have to miss it to feel condemned. I have woken up enough time to open an eye, halfway open one eye and start feeling condemned. We all, for no reason. You don't have to do anything or not do anything to feel condemned, necessarily. Last thing, here's one. Thinking that the cross was God getting even with sin or taking his anger out. I don't know why we think that. This whole mentality of God had to kill somebody. He had to vent his anger, get it out of his system, so he wouldn't have to take it out on him. That's a pretty sick indictment against Abba. The cross was not Abba and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit getting even or getting back, paying back, bless God. It was God healing us of the sin disease. That whole courtroom thing, I think, has done us a lot of disservice. Because there's there's old angry daddy up there on the on the bench, you know. I've been to court a few times, and there he is up there. And not only do we think he's going to condemn us, for some reason we think he's rather happy about this whole situation. He's been looking forward to this, you know. And as soon as he's about to call you into the death sentence, you know, Jesus stands up and says, don't kill them, kill me. The whole mentality is that the judge the uh, is the problem. You know, we say these things like, well, the cross is where God exhausted his wrath and anger. God's anger wasn't our problem. Our sin was our problem. Jesus didn't die to take away Abba's anger problem. He died to take away our sin. Jesus is not God's Prozac. He's our medicine. Does this make sense at all? Because Western Christianity is built on this John Calvin, Augustinian legal model. You know? And I, and I, those, that, that metaphoric language is used, uh, but it's metaphoric. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.